0: Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with Lars Hoiseth, MD, about the article "Tissue Oxygenation Saturation and Finger Perfusion Index in Central Hypovolemia: Influence of Pain," published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Hoiseth is an anesthesiologist at Oslo University Hospital and faculty of medicine at the University of Oslo in Oslo, Norway. He and his group studied the influence of hypovolemia and pain on tissue oxygenation and perfusion index. I would like to welcome Dr. Hoyseth to the podcast. And my first question for you, Dr. Hoyseth, is what do you consider the most important findings from this study?
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. This study was motivated by, by the difficulties that we face when assessing trauma patients as they come into the trauma bay We know that hemorrhage is a major cause of mortality in trauma patients and perhaps also one of the major preventable causes of death. But in trauma patients, it's rather difficult to diagnose mild to moderate bleeding, especially when the patients are spontaneously breathing. Once the hemorrhage becomes severe and the patient decompensates, that is, the blood pressure drops, things are often fairly obvious. But the problem is, before that happens... And uh, traditional markers of hypovolemia, that is, for instance, heart rate and blood pressure, probably have major shortcomings both when it comes to sensitivity and specificity. Now, the body responds to hemorrhage by centralizing its blood volume, and some measures of peripheral perfusion have been studied and explored to see if they are able to to sort of pick up this centralization and thus diagnose the volume loss. The problem is that the mechanism by which this volume loss is compensated, they are to, uh, to a large extent mediated by the sympathetic nervous system and, and typically giving tachycardia and peripheral base constriction. And it's especially this base constriction that has been studied. And uh, what we used in our study were two methods, or two measurements of peripheral perfusion. Those were the perfusion index. And the tissue oxygen saturation as measured by near-infrared spectroscopy. Now, these two measurements are quite different. Actually, the the perfusion index is derived from from an ordinary pulse oximeter or a photoplethysmograph, and the perfusion index is the pulsatile component relative to the uh, to the stationary component or absorption of infrared light. And it is generally believed that as patients' veins constrict, the perfusion index uh, drops. And the perfusion index has been used, for instance, to measure the success of a sympathetic block accompanying a successful regional anesthesia. The tissue oxygen saturation, on the other hand, is a bit related to passive symmetry, but as tissue oxygen saturation is measured by the absorption of red and infrared light and the, and the different absorption spectra of oxygenated and deoxygenated hemoglobin. And I guess the technique is most, clinically used in cardiac surgery, measuring the oxygen saturation in the brain cerebral oximetry. However, tissue oximetry has also been used in peripheral measurement sites, for instance, the thenar and the forearm. Now, we measured tissue oxygenation with nearest SCO2 on the head and on the uh, deltoid muscle and over the forearm and uh, on the thenar. And as I guess many listeners know, uh, this this STO2 is measuring the oxygen saturation in in the whole tissue area, and not only the arterial blood, as with the pulse oximeter. Now, both the perfusion index and the uh, peripheral, especially the forearm tissue oxygenation, have been demonstrated to be sensitive markers of this process of compensation in experimental studies. And, And some clinical studies have also indicated that these Values may be of some discriminatory value to diagnose mild to moderate bleeding. One problem is, and that is the problem that we try to look into, was the rather unspecific response of the body to hemorrhage and volume loss. And that the sympathetic nervous system is activated not only by volume loss, but also maybe activated by other stimuli. For instance, emotional stress and pain. And so we performed a study using um, experimental hypovolemia and experimental pain in a two by two fashion to try to elucidate the, uh, the effects of hypovolemia and pain in isolation and in combination. The method we use or the model we use for hypovolemia was the lower body negative pressure or the LBNP model. And that is a model where the lower body is placed in a container that is fairly airtight and you can apply negative pressure to this container. Uh, in our case, we used two ordinary vacuum cleaners. And by doing that, blood is sucked down into the lower body, creating a central hypovolemia. And hypovolemia that we expose the subjects to uh, corresponds to maybe a liter or a liter and a half of bleeding. And the model of pain we used was the cold pressure test that is, I guess, familiar to many of the listeners, uh, in which a hand is just placed in a bucket filled with ice and water, which is painful. Now, basically, what we found was that pain reduced STO2 in all measurement sites, except for the cerebral measurement site, as well as the perfusion index. And hypovolemia also reduced STO2 in all measurement sites and the perfusion index. And further, in the presence of pain, STO2 and the perfusion index were additionally reduced by adding hypovolemia. So I guess the basic message of this study is that pain probably needs to be taken into consideration when studying and using these markers of peripheral perfusion in order to diagnose bleeding and hypovolemia in trauma patients.
0: How do these measurements compare to some of the more, let's call them, classic measurements used in trauma care? For example, the base deficit or the lactic measurement, are these more sensitive? Do these show abnormalities earlier?
1: I'm not sure about the sensitivity with these measurements compared to those we traditionally use, but I think that it is reasonable to assume that especially STO2 will decrease more rapidly than, say, lactate increases in base excess or base deficit. Because physiologically, it makes sense that you have to be deprived of oxygen in the periphery or in the or in any organ really to make lactate and to have an anaerobic metabolism to make lactate and develop this base deficit. So I guess I believe that the reduction in tissue oxygen saturation will decrease more rapidly than lactate will increase. Or at least I think certainly that will happen. Whether this would be more
0: sensitive or specific, I don't know. That makes sense. I have a technical question for you about the way you measure the tissue oxygenation. It's something that you do on the surface. There's nothing invasive, right? Yeah.
1: Well, the uh, tissue oxygen saturation or the s 2 using near infrared spectroscopy is is a very attractive method in that it is non-invasive. You have these pads that you attach to the skin and it's not harmful. In some of the devices, you have to be careful with the eyes, because so at least some of the older devices use lasers. But most devices that use LED lights, they are virtually harmless. And in my experience, they're also very stable, and they are not very prone to motion artifacts. So I think one of the very attractive aspects of these measurement methods is the stability of these measurement devices and the non invasiveness and it's very easy to use as well.
0: Yes, that sounds like a very good quality to have when you're talking about using it clinically. Speaking of clinical use, what are the clinical advantages and disadvantages of measuring the tissue oxygenation saturation versus the perfusion index? Do they provide different types of information for you, or do you use both to evaluate somebody's hemodynamic status?
1: Well, these two measures are quite different, really. The the SDO two, as measured by near infrared spectroscopy, is a measure of oxygen saturation in the tissue, and it's a bit discussed, and it probably varies from tissue to tissue. What you really measure in, and many of our measurements were over skeletal muscle, and in skeletal muscle, we tend to believe that we measure the hemoglobin saturation, but but over skeletal muscle you probably also measure some degree of myoglobin saturation because they have very similar absorption spectra. And it's also discussed to what extent you measure the enzymes in the mitochondria. But that being said, STO2 is a measure of tissue oxygenation. And uh, the value you get probably depends on the distribution of blood in the arteries and capillaries and and the venous compartment. And, And as you know, the... The dominating volume normally in tissue is in the venous compartment, so the sto 2 measured is probably dominated by the venous oxygen saturation, which in a sense is a very attractive measurement because we already usually have the arterial oxygen saturation from the pulse oximeter, for instance. So that's that's something that we have. But what we often find interesting is the venous saturation because it probably gives a measure of the the balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. A bit like the central venous oxygen saturation. Now the perfusion index is quite different. The perfusion index is more a measure of blood volume being oxygenated or not. The perfusion index is corresponds to the amplitude of the the pulsatile component with each heartbeat of the pulse oximetry waveform, which is also from the the infrared the infrared light or the component of the of the pulse oximeter. And the reason the infrared light is used to create this waveform is because it's not much influenced by the oxygen saturation, which the the other frequencies may be. And so as blood volume increases in whatever tissue you you measure perfusion index on, the absorption is increased, and so less light is being transmitted. So uh, the STO2 is a measure of oxygen saturation in hemoglobin, and possibly myoglobin, and possibly other other chromophores,
0: whereas the perfusion index is a measure of blood volume. So it sounds like, really, they would provide different aspects of the hemodynamic measurements that together help us make a clinical decision.
1: One important aspect of perfusion index, when when the sensor is attached to the fingers, is that the fingers and uh, the soles of the feet, for that matter, are very rich in artery venous and and what they do is that they transfer quite substantial amounts of blood from the arterial side and directly to the venous side. And that is probably in order to promote heat loss. Whereas a skeletal muscle and the perfusion of skeletal muscle is very much regulated by both local conditions and the sympathetic nervous system in order to both maintain blood pressure and to supply the muscles as they contract, for instance, the skin has a big role in thermoregulation and the hands and the soles of the feet, the the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, they are very rich in this anastomosis and they can increase the blood flow in the fingers to a very large extent. And they are sympathetically innervated so that and probably people have experienced themselves that if they are in pain or if they are nervous they often tend to get very wide fingers. And that is why you can see that the the pulse oximetry waveform from the thing is very much influenced by pain for instance and that is also why this waveform has been exploited to measure pain for instance something called the surgical path index which has been attempted or proposed as as a measurement of pain based on on that signal so you may end up in a situation where this signal is one man's or one man's noise is another man's signal People looking at pain will find the pain aspect interesting, whereas people looking at hypovolemia will find the hypovolemia aspect interesting.
0: Right. Now, I also wanted to ask you about using these measurements for other types of clinical scenarios where the hemodynamics are unstable. So, for example, rather than talking about hypovolemic shock in trauma, septic patients in septic shock or cardiogenic shock, do you have any thoughts about the clinical utility of these measurements in those particular clinical situations?
1: Well, the STO2 has been mainly explored, I think, in, in, for instance, septic shock, using the vascular occlusion test. Now, in our study, which was a very brief, hypovolemic exposure, I believe that it is fair to say that, that we didn't influence the the function of the microcirculation or the function of the of the mitochondria in our subjects. But in septic shock, STO2 has been used both uh, on the forearm and on then but, but mainly on the thina accompanying a vascular occlusion test. In a vascular occlusion test the, the blood supply to the arm is shut off by inflating or obstructing the, the blood supply to the arm. And then you look at the deceleration rate of the STO2 and then, as the occlusion is relieved, you look at the how the STO2 increases, and you can also look at the hyperemic response afterwards. And that has been linked to both microcirculatory function and also a mitochondrial function, uh, which one believes is, is affected in septic shock. Now, the STO2 itself has rather large variability uh, between subjects. And I'm not sure if STO2 itself has been very extensively studied in, in septic patients, apart from, as I said, in the uh, in the uh, vascular occlusion test. Now, the vascular occlusion test has also been tried uh, in uh, studied in, in trauma patients uh, pre-hospitally and also seen to have some relation to the severity of, of the trauma.
0: That's interesting. Do you think that in trauma patients there's also microvascular dysfunction or mitochondrial dysfunction? I'm not an expert on that, but I, I believe that... I think that it's fair to
1: assume that if you are hypoperfused for some time, you will get dysfunction in the microcirculation, or you you may get dysfunction in the microcirculation and energy consumption, if you like. And some like to talk about the dose of shock, and it. I, I guess it's a, it's a clinical experience that, that if patients are hypoperfused too long, they are more difficult to resuscitate, and even though you resuscitate them, they <laughs> they are not well afterwards. So uh, I think it's fair to assume that, that uh, being exposed to hyperperfusion too much, too long, influences uh, your body and uh, and also the uh, mitochondrial function, perhaps, and the microcirculation. Whether examining that using, for instance, STO two is of value, I think that's that's too early to say. But it might be that it could have a potential perhaps to explore if the patient is affected by this hyperperfusion by, for instance, performing a vascular occlusion test.
0: It's certainly inspiring to think that this could help us think about the time course of somebody in hypovolemic shock from trauma, for example, and to think more about what exactly is happening in septic shock. I really like that. Let, Let me ask you about the next question I have for you, which is, What do you think the practical applications can be for utilizing these measurements in a real-time trauma bay? I think that STO2 in particular
1: is, is a promising technique in that it is easy to perform and it gives measurements that may be physiologically sound. And I also think that even though we tried in our article to point out that there may be some limitations or maybe some concerns regarding the use of this technique in trauma patients, that does not mean that we think that it should be abandoned. And uh, I believe that even though you find shortcomings and limitations to a technique, knowing about them makes you, uh, in a way, uh, it, may, it may leave you confused at a higher level, but still <laughs> you're on a higher level. Uh, so, uh, so I think that this technique and the STO2 may have a potential in, in the future in, in assessing and maybe also perhaps when resuscitating trauma patients. And I think that it has been increasingly important to resuscitate trauma patients correctly and especially when we try to not give too much clear fluids and we try to maybe keep the patients hypotensive until we have definitive surgical control of any bleeding. I think the uh, titrating volume becomes perhaps increasingly important, and also as there is increasing focus on uh, traumatic uh, coagulopathy, which is probably worsened by giving clear fluids, that's a further um, argument for for titrating fluids correctly. But it may be that our study perhaps indicates that it's not it's not so easy to tell whether the patient needs fluids, orifinates, fentanyl. So I guess that's that's sort of the bottom line of this of this article.
0: Yeah. To, to try to summarize the session thus far, it sounds like what you're advocating for is to drill down deeper beyond the vital signs and the other standard ways of examining a patient in a trauma bay and to use the tissue oxygenation and perfusion index as a way to track somebody through their trauma course and to perhaps use that as a way to apply the principles of hypovolemic resuscitation that we're doing now, but that these measurements could be influenced in addition by pain. Is that correct in terms of what I'm summarizing? Yes, I think so. And as I said, uh,
1: knowing about this limitation does not mean that we should abandon the the, the technology, but I think that it may help you guide resuscitation and also guide the diagnosis of the patient as he as he comes into the trauma bay. I think that one of the most difficult questions that, that I'm asked when I'm in call is, does this patient bleed? And, uh, and I think that perhaps STO2 in particular could be of value in that assessment, but also that we need to have in the back of our heads, that pain and perhaps also other stressful stimuli could could affect that measurement.
0: Right. It also sounds like keeping track of the perfusion index, which demonstrates in a way a patient's vasomotor tone, could be useful during their clinical care as well. Yes, and that, that may very, very well be the case. I think
1: that the perfusion index is, seems to be very... Very sensitive to many many things and um, it also seemed from our results that uh, you need to have some vasodilation in order to vasoconstrict in a way and so uh, if you are very vasoconstricted when you arrive to the trauma bay it's not very easy to see what's going on because you have (laughs) really nowhere to go and um, one aspect that that we didn't touch very much in our manuscript was the aspect of temperature and many, many trauma patients are cold, especially where I'm working. And, and they probably are basically constricted just by the temperature as they as they uh, come in. So the perfusion index is, is rather sensitive to um, many sympathetic stimuli. The second author of this paper, he, a physiologist, he, he, uh, he likes to have a bit of fun with the medical students when he teaches them. and. Uh, in our paper, and we, we found that the perfusion index was was highly correlated, or very, very tightly correlated, to to the uh, skin perfusion as mes- measured by laser Doppler flowmetry on the on the on the thumb. And he likes to have a bit fun with them to uh, to hook them up with a with this laser Doppler flowmetry measurement on the thumb and say the word exam, and then they all vasoconstrict. <laughs> <clears throat> and I haven't done that myself with the perfusion index, but it might be the case for the perfusion index as well. So it seems to be a rather sensitive and maybe not very specific marker of of hypovolemia.
0: Right, right. Oh, that's funny. We were talking before we started recording about other applications for these measurements, and you had mentioned that this could be useful for maybe measuring free flap perfusion, for example.
1: Yes, the STO2 measurements have been explored in many clinical situations, uh, and some seem to be quite promising and, and as you mentioned, uh, I think it has been studied in free uh, in flaps where you may have all sorts of problems with, uh, with both the arterial and venous blood supply. And it has also been used or explored at least to monitor the um, or to look for uh, um, compartment syndrome, especially uh, with fractures in the, in the lower limb and that the um, STO2 drops as, as the compartment pressure increases. And so you maybe get rid of these invasive measurements of, of pressure. Now the the problem may be that the um, the infrared light doesn't separate the compartments very well. So it it might be a bit difficult to know which actually which compartment you you measure from. And uh, I think that in the future, perhaps also studying different organs than and maybe especially in children, where perhaps measuring. Over the kidneys could be of value, but I think that that has to be
0: uh, that remains to be elucidated. That is a nice segue to my next question for you, which is, what is next for this area of study for you? Well, the next area for us, I think that one interesting finding
1: that was maybe not very central to this this talk so far is is the cerebral measurements, and a bit to our surprise, we found a quite consistent decrease in the cerebral cerebral oxygen saturation with hypovolemia, and that didn't seem to be very affected by pain. And so perhaps the signal-to-noise ratio, if you like, was better with cerebral measurements. That that may be a bit surprising because we would perhaps classically think that the autoregulation would take care of the blood supply to the brain, maybe, almost no matter what, until you decompensate. But but we, we saw a quite consistent reduction in the cerebral oxygen saturation. The reduction was was not very big. It was just a few percent, but it was rather consistent. Now, it has been discussed quite a lot, actually, what you actually measure when you measure the cerebral oximetry because the contamination from the superficial tissues is, is an issue that hasn't been uh, resolved yet, I think. Some studies indicate that that some of the reduction that you see in, in cerebral oximetry, for instance during during cardiac surgery and cardiovular barbas, could be caused by reduction in perfusion of the superficial tissues in the skin, in the scalp, which would really be regarded as contamination in in, in that respect. So uh, I think it would be interesting to see if this reduction in cerebral oxygenation could be related to a um, real reduction in the cerebral perfusion. And if so, if that could, be, that could be a marker of
0: hypovolemia in, in spontaneously breathing, uh, breathing patients. Sure. In a way, it sounds like that could be the most specific way to measure hypovolemia. That would be really interesting. Well, that wraps up today's podcast. Thank you all for joining us today. This concludes yet another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCritical for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I thank Dr. Hoysef and I am Dr. Ludwig Lynn.
2: Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion, or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash projectdispatch. Ludwig Lynn M.D., is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lynn did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lynn of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.